Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for our church. God, we thank you that we could gather in uh, this symbolic space. God, that has stood for decades of all different denominational backgrounds. And through the rise and fall of so many things that happen in the world, God, this building has been a place of worship. And we thank you that we are able to continue that legacy here. So, Father, we thank you that as we gather here, it is for our lives to be placed on the potter's wheel. And for you to form, shape, and mold us into your creative purposes for our life. So God, we thank you, we praise you, and God, I need the Packers to beat the Bears today. So uh, if we lose to the Bears and don't make the playoffs, I am going to be distraught. Amen. (laughs) Typically when I pray prayers like that too, the worst part, I always used to pray for my fantasy team up here, and then I just lose all the time. Started one and seven this year, still got third place though. All right, anybody, nobody? Okay, whatever, I don't care. I'm I'm excited. (laughs) Uh, I, I said this last week, and I want to encourage you, um, you know, it, whatever your uh, background in church activity or faith involvement is, January is always uh, a great time as we set our goals. How many of you guys wrote out goals this week for your life this year? Anybody? Okay, good. And then, and then usually in January, February, we start like trying to do it and really work towards those goals. And then in March, if we didn't write them down and we didn't put any work in, then we... Don't do anything at all, and it just turns into another year. But um, I feel like uh, I always have a fun opportunity in January to just do what I just call passion preaching, which is just like, chase God this year with everything. And uh, last week was just a great week. Like I said, um, if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to listen um, to that message as we talked about the fist-sized future of believing in the small that God um, could do in your life and kind of dissected a little bit of Elijah's story. And it was a great message, in my opinion. If you didn't like it, don't tell me. Um, but, uh, but this week, I want to talk about something, and it's actually been something I've been stewing on for a while, and I'm titling it, A Faith That Makes It Happen. A faith that makes it happen. Now, for some of us, we can easily slip into now a theological debate where it's like, oh, it's not by might or my works or anything, but it's, you know, it's or faith and works or whatever it is. But what we're going to find today is there's three stories in Scripture that, it, that are very interesting in Jesus' wording. We're going to spend a lot of time, and for some of us, I'm going to say this, and you're going to be like, oh, I've heard a sermon on that 10 billion times, but it's fine because you're going to hear it in a different way, and I might crack a few jokes, so it'll be a little tiny, maybe a bit better. Um, But we're going to talk about blind Bartimaeus, but specifically, there's a phrasing in this story, your faith has made you well. And many of you guys don't know this. You might sit here and think like, oh, I've heard that statement before. Yeah, you might have, but it's actually only used three times in scripture in which Jesus does a miraculous act towards somebody, but he looks at them and he deflects the power away from himself and instead paints a picture of them as a person who has a faith that literally made them well. 
But before we get into dissecting that story, I want to encourage you today. I feel like um, for our church, um, the reason I love the story of blind Bartimaeus, and we're going to break it down in a second, is because there's, it's a very, uh, he breaks down in such such vivid detail of the story. There's so many things that he addresses about his personhood. And I want to say this to you today. I believe sometimes it's easy to come to church. And what we have is we have big things we need God to do. Okay, well, you know, I want the career I want. I want to get the good grades or I want to find that right person or I want something for my children or I want that house. We have these big the asks of God, but what about, what if I told you, right, that the depth of your relationship and communication just comes down to how often you talk about the small things? You know, me and my wife, we don't just talk about big things we need to do or big things that need to be done. We talk about everything. And I feel like this is where I want to start our conversation is around this idea of communicating even the small things with God and seeing what he does with them. I say that because a few weeks ago, it was my birthday. I turned 46. Nobody believed that. It's okay. I have been pulling white hair out of my head, though. That's what happens when you play at a church. Um, but uh, some people are like, how many? It's like four hairs. Don't judge me. Um, no laughs. Who cares? Uh, fake laughs. <laughs> uh, I remember there was a few weeks ago, I grew up. And still fake laughs. Um, I, grew, I grew up, and I remember, I started mowing lawns. I, I made a shirt, uh, shirt. I lived in Oceanside, California. I made a shirt as like a five-year-old. I'm not kidding. My mom still tells this story and is so proud of me. Only time she's ever been proud of me in my life. But uh, she made a shirt, and I made a shirt, and I just rode on it, the working dude. And I went door to door in my neighborhood, and I'd go door to door and ask the neighbors, like, do you need anything done? And half of them just couldn't believe there was a five-year-old that was trying to make some money. It's like, you're literally this big. I was really small kind of my whole life. And so I was, it was just funny, but I used to try to make money all the time growing up. And what I loved to do with my money is I loved to buy, drum roll, please. <laughs> I can't believe that worked. <laughs> but he's like really leaning in on that. I, usually it takes like 45 seconds for it to kick in. Anyway, um, I loved to buy tennis shoes. Or sneakers today, as the new generation calls them. Because <laughs> who calls things tennis shoes anymore? Because it is weird, because no, none of us play tennis. But we play pickleball. <laughs> Keith, you, do you play pickleball? You only text me 47 times a week to play. Um, but <laughs> but uh, also, Keith and Cherry are good at pickleball. But anyway... I would save up, and here's what's interesting. I've been in ministry uh, now uh, full-time for 12 years, and as I've been in ministry, uh, it's funny because there was like a season, and many of you guys, if you were in church, you know there was like this season kind of where there was a viral thing called preachers and sneakers where they would kind of make fun of preachers who wore really expensive sneakers. But little did they know, my entire life I was wearing sneakers. And so I was so grieved because I remember I would get around pastors who were wearing really nice sneakers and I'd want to talk to them about the sneakers they were wearing. And all they would do is be like, what are you talking about? And I was just like, I'm so grieved in spirit. But I say that because I, my whole life I've always loved shoes, and right now I, I, I'm big into New Balance. That's kind of my thing, and even though I'm not wearing them right now, stop looking at my feet. Let's just keep going. Um, but a few weeks ago I was in a restaurant. I'm in a restaurant. I'm eating at the restaurant, and I look, and there's a guy wearing the shoes that I was wearing. And the only thing was is the shoelaces were different. And I remember looking at him, and I was like, his shoelaces look better than mine. <laughs> and we have the exact same shoe. <laughs> 
And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, dang, I, know, I, had, I bought these dead stock. He probably did too. How did he get them laces? And I'm thinking about it, and I remember pulling up on my phone. I like Google. Okay, that shoe should have came with two or three laces. It's so weird. I never saw them in the box, never got them, and my shoes weren't laced that way, but whatever. Fast forward, I'm not kidding you, two weeks later, I'm, uh, I'm in my office studying. And if you, uh, me and my wife, if, if you are looking for a Bible reading plan this year, we've kind of posted ours online. But we have a very kind of specific way we read the Bible. And you can literally go online, fixaphx.com slash Bible, and it'll pop up. But I'm reading my Bible. And as I've routinely learned over the years, as I read the Bible, my ADD takes over in 42 seconds or 17 or 9. Um, and I remember I'm reading the Bible this day, and as I'm reading the Lord's, I, I feel like there's like, hey, you should go check your shoebox for the shoelaces. It's been like two or three weeks. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm, okay, God, like, I bind you, devil. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean in, God. I will not be distracted from this moment. It's like some of us, we've probably sat here before and we're like, okay, I try to read my Bible and it's like all of a sudden I like get a text and then I'm online shopping, then I'm at Trader Joe's and then I'm on a beach. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't know what, like, you, you, like we have moments where we as people, like it's, it's just funny how quick the rabbit holes can just get like full rabbit hole, you know? And uh, so I remember that day, I'm like, I like block it out. I'm like, no God, like I'm here. And I just literally, I keep hearing shoelaces and I'm just like, uh, Lord, is this like, what is going on? And so I remember, I just get up, I go grab the shoebox out of storage, and I open it, and the shoelaces I want are right there. And I remember taking them, I walk out, put them in the shoe, and I walk back, and, and I felt like the Lord said, I sat down to read again, and he said, even the littlest things I hear. And how many of us, right, all we communicate is the big things we have, and not just the littlest, tiniest things to our Heavenly Father. See, this year, I hope that you reframe your communication to include the word just everything. That you would understand that the God that, that you serve is not just a God who wants to do grand things with your life. He wants to be with you in the routine, daily existence of you as a person. So with that, that's why I love this story, is because that's what I feel like he's addressing directly in this story. So with that, we're going to spend some time in Mark 10, 46 through 52, specifically talking about blind Bartimaeus. And today, once again, our title of faith that makes it happen. Let's read. It says this, verse 46, then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind man named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, come here, call him here. So they called the blind man and saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. Verse 50, throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on 
the road. So I started in the beginning saying, okay, I want to talk about a life or a faith that makes it happen. But really what I'm going to do now is shift from that into really kind of brass tech, what I'm calling principles of a faith that makes it happen. I'm going to give you four principles from this story of a faith that makes it happen. And also we're going to jump around and dissect the two other stories that that phrasing is used. But my goal today is for you to realize that you can have a faith that as you reach for God, his response is not to your need, it's to your faith. I'm going to say that again because I think a lot of us, that's the only view we have of God. Is the communication of God. See, I didn't need God to find my shoelaces. But he responded to me based off of the depth of relationship and the heart posture I had to give me the shoelaces I wanted. (laughs) But what am I saying to you? See, some of us, what we do is we reach for God in need, not reach to God from a life that is so rooted in faith and proximity that it's not even a reach. It's just a whisper in his ear because he's always next to us. So today, principles of a faith that makes it happen. The first one. We all will have a condition in life, a status about our life, and a name unique to our life. How you form your identity will dictate more about your destiny than any choice you will make. How you form your identity will determine your destiny. See, a lot of us, if I sit here and really ask you the question, what is your identity? See, some of us, we would sit here and be like, oh, I'm a child of God. But you know what's interesting about this story? It's that the, uh, the way that he addresses Bartimaeus gives us a, an insight into how God wants to address your life as well. See, what we see at first is we see his condition is addressed. What is his condition? He's blind. Now, many of us would go, okay, well, that, you know, that's, that makes sense, but then he addresses his status. Because you could be blind and not be a beggar. Why does he have to add beggar to it? Because there was a condition that then caused a status. So at first we've got the condition, blindness. Then we have the status, a beggar. Then we have the unique name, Bartimaeus. But even more unique is that there's a reference to the father's name. Now, we're going to talk directly about what these names mean, so don't worry. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here in a second on it. But what I love about the story of Bartimaeus is God doesn't just restore eyesight. He restores the condition. He restores the status. He restores the name. And that's what God wants to do with you. Because a faith that makes it happen is one in which God has restored those things, the condition of our fallen mankindness the status that we're known for that we're not proud of the name that we carry around that maybe has baggage attached to it you know what the name Bartimaeus means son who is unclean you know what's interesting if you research um, in, in kind of that's why these names are remembered as typically they believed that when, when these names are recorded in scripture, it's because there's a, a, an intended reasoning to search for the definition. But even more fascinating is you would name your child based off of the condition. But in this particular instance, what we can summarize is that Bartimaeus has been blind from birth. Why? Is because people, and you know that in the New Testament, there's a narrative that forms that if you were born with an imperfection or a 
or dealing with something that ultimately was believed because there was sin in your family line or sin in the womb that you were paying the price for it. So his name literally means the, the unclean one, but it's because his condition made it seem like he was the product of unclean. How many of us have felt that, you don't have to raise your hand, but have felt that at some point in our life where, where we feel like, okay, God, you, you know, you, I know you can heal, I know you can restore, I know that you love me, but man, I just don't feel clean. See, that's Bartimaeus' story. I don't feel like I'm somebody you love. I don't feel like I'm somebody that you paid the price for. I don't feel like... You truly see me. See, these are things that I know Bartimaeus is is seeing. Why? Because we see his condition, his status, and his name, and all of them aren't positive. But you want to know something about this story? You know what is positive? His father's name. Timaeus. You know what the definition is? Highly prized. So we see a man whose status, his condition, and his name is not something he's proud of. But you know what he's connected to? The one who is highly prized. I challenge you today and this morning. See, a lot of us, what we can tend to do is focus on the status, the condition, or the baggage that our names bring and not realize that the opportunity in faith is to recognize that it is not the status, it is not the condition, It is not the name. It is rather if you're connected to the Father who makes you highly prized. I challenge us today around this reasoning, and this is why I love the story. See, the blind beggar who was born unclean was always connected, no matter the condition or the status, to the Father's name. And that name is highly prized. The second principle I want to talk about is this. Your communication with Jesus must be built on the accurate viewpoint of who he is. He is a Messiah, Lord, Savior, or Son of David, but is not so much the words we call him as much as it is if those words are true in the deepest part of our souls. Lip service is not always what the heart serves. You know what's interesting about this story and and when you dissect it is you know that um, in verses 47 and 48, we see that he, he yells out the name, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is an interesting wording he uses. Why? Because it's, it's one thing to say, uh, many of us would just, oh, he's calling, he's just saying Jesus, like, have mercy, like, you know, heal me. He's not saying I'm blind, heal me, God. Or Jesus, come heal me. He's using something that has meaning. And that meaning is this, okay? Son of David in the Old Testament is a messianic title. Now, this is a thought I want to introduce you today. When we read it earlier, you see the very first time he yells it, he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then it says the second time he yells it, people around him look at him and try to tell him to be quiet. Now, many of us are like, well, they probably told him to be quiet because he was screaming his head off and it was annoying. Could be true. But I want to introduce another thought to you today. Son of David was the belief in the messianic title that God would send something or someone that would recompense sin and usher in a new way of living. But here's the other thing. You don't see people calling Jesus son of David in scripture, especially strangers. 
So I want to introduce this thought to you. He yelled son of David one time, and it was probably shocking to people to hear a blind man call a random person walking by son of David. But the second time he did it, it was borderline slanderous. Hypocrisy. How could apostasy, how could you say that about this man? Be quiet. And here's the thing, what you need to realize about this story, the reason Jesus stops and responds is two-pronged. I believe the very first reason he stops and responds is because he can't believe he's being called something by someone. And it gets his attention. The depths of what was being called out showed something inside that was different than what other people had said to him. And what I want to say to you is this, a faith that makes it happen is that when our lives are, are professing and glorifying, worshiping, or calling Jesus what it is, but at the same time, he's not looking and saying, oh, it's lip service because that's what the crowd is doing. He's rather looking and saying, oh man, that is truly who the heart serves. And I respond on that behalf. What am I challenging you today on? See, many of us, we've, we've been in the room and we know the words to say, we know the titles to give Jesus, but do we have the life that is rooted in him that when our mouths open and say those words, they ignite the power that they are supposed to possess? See, this is what's fascinating about the story. You don't get God's attention when you're yelling. You get God's attention when your heart is believing what's coming out of your mouth. How have we built a lifestyle around our beliefs so that when our mouths speak of faith, it speaks of a faith that believes that what it's saying can actually happen. To call Jesus the Messiah, this wasn't this widespread phenomenon going on in that day. It maybe was in that select group of disciples, but a random stranger on the side of the road who had every reason to be mad at God for the condition he was in. See, we don't talk about that enough. When Jesus heals people in scripture and they're inviting him into healing, they have every right to resent him instead of to invite him. Why? Why would I be born this way? Why would I have gone through this? Why did this happen to me? See, that's the logic that a lot of us don't explore and all of us have felt. We go through something, why God, instead of pressing into God in the hopes of his restorative healing power, turning it for his good and for his glory, it is just as easy to say, God, I want nothing to do with you because I believe you may have caused this because you had the power not to cause it. It must mean you did cause it. And that's a confusing rhetoric to follow around. Okay, if he has the power to not cause it, then why would he allow it to happen? And I didn't talk about this in the first service, but I have a response for this always because the, the Christian question that we all ask, why would bad things happen to good, good people? The worst thing happened to the most perfect person. Literally the worst human thing that could happen on the face of the planet. Worst death you could have, crucifixion, had to the most, happened to the most perfect person to ever walk the face of the earth. And that's who we are called to pursue. But I challenge you today, you'll have every excuse not to call him son of David, not to believe that he's Lord, not to believe that he's Messiah, not to say he's, he's, the, you're, he's your savior. Why? Because in this day and age, he's more of an additive than he is the foundation. 
He's more of a side plate to the main course of comfort and superficiality and consumption and consumerism that our country is built off of. I challenge us today, when we say the name, may we have a heart posture that the name responds to. The third thing today I have for you is this. You cannot pick up the new things of God if you have not put off an old identity of what your life is currently or has been that you're holding on to. He has the power to heal. He has the power to give new purpose and meaning. But there is a tangible step of putting off the old we must undertake before he can ever lead us into the new work of restoration, healing, and fulfillment. You know what's interesting about this story? You'll hear it a lot talking about is Mark ten fifty, and they don't have to go there. Just leave the point on the screen. We see that the man takes off his cloak. If you know anything about this story, you know that this is often talked about. Why? Because why would, the, why would it matter if he stood up and took off a cloak? First off, I think it's interesting he took off his cloak as a blind man because you don't just like turn around and pick off your cloak and take off your cloak and then pick it up. It's a little, probably a little bit harder of something to do. But more than that, what we see in the story is that the cloak had a symbolism of the Roman occupation. And the Roman occupation, what they believed is that ultimately if you had um, some form of disability that it inhibited you from the workforce, you could be given a cloak that would designate you as a beggar and give you the right to ask for money. And so this man's cloak is his identity. His man's cloak is his status. This man's cloak is his passage into the provision needed to survive in that day and age. So to take his cloak off is a huge moment. But I want to talk to you right now about the timing of the cloak being taken off. Because see, a lot of us, we hear that, we're like, yeah, he took the cloak off and then God did it. But what's interesting to me about the story is he took the cloak off before he went to Jesus. He took the cloak off still blind. He literally discarded his previous identity before he even had his new one in hopes that the man he was going to see, he wouldn't need that anymore. What am I saying to you today? See, I would say this. In the New Testament, there's a ton of language around these two words. You ready? Put on. And actually, Paul gives a ton of imagery of putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting off the things of this world and putting on the new. Putting off all of the the negativity, the junk, the, the, the symbolism, the status, all the things, and putting on the things of Christ. And in this one, you want to know why I believe Jesus looked at this man and said, your faith has made you well? Is he heard somebody call him son of David and nobody ever did. He saw a man who was blind and literally discarded his cloak of identity and the thing that could be the stabilizing force. And he showed up to Jesus and he's like, I got, hopefully you're going to do it because I already left everything behind. What am I saying to you today? I challenge us. Can you remember ever putting off the cloaks of your life? 
Can you remember ever running to Jesus and you can identify the things that need to be stripped away and then you were tangibly active in stripping those things away so that he actually could heal, so that he could actually restore, so that he could actually give you new status, so that he could actually give you a new way of reasoning and functioning and so you could follow him. Because what's sad to me today is we want to put on new things, but we want to also wear the old. We want, the, we want the robes of righteousness, but the cloaks of sinfulness. And I say that because I did a word study for you today. See, I talked about how Paul talked about putting on, but it's more than Paul. You see it all throughout the New Testament. So I'm going to read some things to you so you understand what you're supposed to be putting on so you can understand why you should be taking some things off. Romans 13, 14. You want to overcome the lust of the flesh? It says, put on something new. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Ephesians 6, 13. You want to be able to stand? Put on something new. It says to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you are able to stand your ground. Colossians 3, 10. You want to be, you want to be renewed? You have to put on a new knowledge. And having put on the new self, which is from being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator. Colossians 3.14, put on love. Ephesians 4.24, and put on a new self, created to be like God, in righteousness and in holiness. Romans 13, 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on armor of light. You know, the hardest thing as a pastor is to see people who want to be healed and made whole, people who really are crying out to Jesus, but just love the cloaks. And God's inviting us all this morning and this year to put on something new, but the, there has to be an awareness of the things you have to take off in order to receive that new. And a lifestyle that says, God, I'll keep putting on. I'll keep putting on the righteousness. I'll keep putting on the holiness. I'll keep putting on a renewed mind. As, as I put on clothes every day, this is what I put on every day. I'll put on the armor of light. This is the challenge. My final point for you today, my final principle, I should say, is this. Your faith has made you well as a reality you can live in as a believer. The question is, are you willing to build a life on Jesus that makes your life well? Through the obstacles, challenges, negativity, time constraints, and discomfort, are you willing to build? You can't have a faith that makes you well without a life that revolves around knowing his will and doing his will. I talked about this earlier, and this is my final moments um, this morning. I talked about this earlier, and I, I feel like it's missed a lot. Your faith has made you well is found in two other miracles. Now, it's mentioned in other passages of Scripture, but when you actually boil down where the references are found, it's describing these three miracles. Those three miracles are the first one we just talked about, blind Bartimaeus. The second one is the woman with the issue of blood. If we know the story a woman who dealt with constant bleeding that fights through the crowd with the belief that if she could just touch the fringe of the robe, she would be healed. 
And what happens as she fights through that crowd and touches the fringe of the robe? It doesn't say that Jesus turned, saw her, and healed her. It said that Jesus felt power leave him and asked his disciples who touched him. See, this is why I think this part of the story is interesting. See, we just broke down blind Bartimaeus. Why would Jesus use it in this instance for the woman with the issue of blood? What if I told you, right, that 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 instance is a perfect picture of what it means to have a heart that makes you well, is that you get so close to Jesus that he doesn't even have to do it. It's because your life is so close that his power flows. Think about that imagery. We've got blind Bartimaeus who will call out son of David, who will then strip off the cloak and go forward fully ready to be healed. But we've got another woman who says, I have to get close. I have to touch him. I have to get close. I have to touch him. And what happens? She's healed. The last story, and this one is the one that makes, I would say, the least amount of sense why he would use that language, is the story of the ten lepers. What we see is the ten lepers fall at his feet, asking him to be healed. He sends them away, says, you'll be healed. Go check at the temple to make sure you're ceremonially clean. And one leper comes back thanking him, glorifying him, and worshiping him for what he had done. Now, what's interesting about that story is this. To be a leper and to be healed in that day, you would have to be examined to make sure that you could make re-entry into society. Because if you were a leper, then you had to be somebody who was completely removed from society and being removed from society, live your days almost in complete isolation and away from all civilization. So before these guys could actually step into their healing, they had to be thoroughly checked to make sure they were healed. So what happened? They go get checked, but only one goes back. Why is this important? All they wanted was healing, and they got it. But only one went back to the one who healed to recognize who he was. Or should I say it like this? God, I need you to do something, but the moment you do it, I don't need you anymore. Faith that makes you well is having a mouth that when it speaks, it speaks in God's response. Faith that makes you well is when you're aware of cloaks that will inhibit the healing, you take them off. Faith that makes you well is when you will fight through whatever you need to get through, the crowds, the noise, the hustle and bustle, everything, just to touch the corner. Faith that makes you well is you don't just go to him when you need him. You go to him over and over And over. And what you find is when you start going to Jesus, you stop going for need and you start going for the presence. Faith that makes you well comes from a life that says, The only wellness I'll ever get, healing I'll ever get, fulfillment I'll ever get, significance I'll ever get is being close to Jesus then you might find you don't even notice the faith that you have. You just live in the it is well place of being one with God. A heart posture that says, I must get close. A proximity that says, I must get close. A heart that says, I'll do a little bit more than what is required. I'll push through when it's difficult 
And I'll never forget the source, the sustainer, and the supplier of my life. This is faith that makes you well. Stand to your feet this morning. As we worship one final time with really nobody looking around, can we all close our eyes for a second? I just want to invite us into a peace and stillness today in which we assess our own walks. You know, in Scripture, there's a great invitation. And the invitation is this, to be still and know that I am God. To be still and then know. Another famous one, Psalms 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But there's another passage where it says, you make me lie down and restore my soul. Today, I hope that we're a people who we are still and work in stillness into our life to know that he's gone. That we lean into seasons in which we maybe feel like we are being made to lie down, but trust that He is the one who restores our soul. So whatever that looks like, maybe you need to maybe you need to assess the names you've been calling, the habits you've had, the routines of following Him. Have we only been going for the need? Have we only been fighting through the crowd if we're hoping for a second that he'll do something on our behalf? Have we identified more with our status, our condition, or our baggage that we have the highly prized name that he offers us?